0: It is Thursday, May the 19th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show. Very happy to have you all here. I'm your host, Guy Benson. From 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, every single weekday. And if you can't listen as we air, we have a podcast for that. It is free of charge, on demand. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Everything you need right there. GuyBensonShow.com. You can also follow us, if you would, on Twitter and Instagram, at Guy Benson Show. We are broadcasting from Nashville, Tennessee, today and tomorrow right in the thick of it all, downtown. Very cool town that's just exploding in recent years. I was out earlier just getting lunch, and just the number of cranes and construction, people everywhere. It's a great energy here in nashville and it's fun to be in this part of the country as we look at the lineup today here on the show here's what we've got coming in your direction peter ducey fox news correspondent at the white house he will join us later this hour in the next hour dr marty McCarry will be here on covid some covid related issues and concerns floating around out there plus what is this monkey pox thing have you heard about this is this something to actually be concerned about, or is this just the kind of hair-trigger paranoia now that a lot of people have, given what we all just lived through for the last two years? We will put those questions to Dr. McCarry, And in our last hour, we will catch up with Andy McCarthy, our Fox News colleague, also a former federal prosecutor. What is happening in that Michael Sussman trial involving the Durham investigation, the Clinton campaign, The Trump campaign and then presidency, all the Russia stuff. Some interesting developments already in court. And Andy will bring those to us and explain them, the context, etc. That is the game plan here today on the show. Now, I want to begin with a topic that we covered yesterday. And I had to bring all of you the very sad news that Nina Jankowitz and her Ministry of Truth are apparently going to be shown the door here by the Biden administration. Sweet Nina will not be leading up this panel, which has been indefinitely paused. And what I don't quite know is whether or not they're going to try to kind of resuscitate this thing under other circumstances in the near or middle-term future. That would not surprise me. But the big disinformation board is no more. And I know many of you are huge fans of hers. You love her work. You love her performances. You love her creativity. You love her just even-keeled, nonpartisan sanity. You love her beautiful singing voice. And to have that all just cruelly ripped away out of nowhere must have been quite a shock to so many people yesterday, and the shocks continue to reverberate. Sweet Nina has broken her silence, and she did so on MSNBC, surprise, where she explained that what they were going to be doing at the Ministry of Truth isn't what the attacks claimed. So here's what she said last night in cut five.
1: I fully understand Americans' concerns that they don't want government involved in policing speech. And good news, this initiative wasn't involved in policing speech, and neither was I. Um, I think, you know, it is important that our government get involved when we have real threats to our national security. So it's not just uh, things like election interference, which we've seen and which DHS has combated also, but uh, threats at the border, disinformation that is driving people to migrate here, disinformation that could affect critical infrastructure, like our financial systems and gas pipelines, all of that has very real effects for the safety of Americans. And frankly, I think DHS and other federal agencies need to be involved because this problem isn't going away. It's only getting worse.
0: Ah, we don't want government involved in policing speech. And good news. That's not what she was going to do. The whole initiative had nothing to do with that. They were going to be looking at us. They're going to be worried about disinformation affecting foreign policy and national security. So she says. And as I mentioned, with all due respect to Sweet Nina, I don't believe her. I don't. How many top officials had even testified under oath that Americans were not being surveilled in certain ways when, in fact, it turned out later that they were? And those officials, I'll remind you, despite pretty clearly perjuring themselves, not only were not prosecuted, they were given plum gigs at other TV networks to be national security analysts. I believe several of those people actually signed on to the letter calling the Hunter Biden laptop Russian disinformation, which is what the Biden campaign wanted them to call it. So they leapt at that opportunity to repeat that actual misinformation, calling it Russian disinformation, which it was not. And guess who was on board with that whole push back then, right before the 2020 election? That's right, Sweet Nina. That was part of the misinformation and disinformation that she has shared and promoted in her career. We just had the White House saying, remember, even on a small thing about crack pipes in the safe smoking kits or whatever that were coming from organizations getting federal grants from the Biden administration, they lied about that. They had a categorical denial that was debunked by the Washington Free Beacon, so they had to tweak the denial. This stuff all adds up. You can tell us that this was not going to affect Americans at all. They were not going to be surveilling or policing speech of American citizens here in the country. And I think based on their track record collectively and her track record specifically, it is entirely rational for us to say, we don't believe you. Remember, this is the woman who had said publicly that she feels like People's tweets should be edited by experts. If people tweet something that goes viral, that has information that she deems to be incorrect, those tweets should be unilaterally edited, overridden by experts out there somewhere. That was something that she was fantasizing about in public. So pardon me, madame, for not simply taking you at your word about what the intention behind all of this was. Your credibility is not good. We went on to talk about how this whole episode has been. And how it's just so unfair, given her professionalism and her seriousness of purpose. Cut seven.
1: It was really overwhelming, Chris. I mean, frankly, you know, I have prided myself over my career of being a really nuanced, uh, reasonable person. Again, as I said, I've, yeah. I've briefed and advised both Republicans and Democrats. I admire some of the steps that the Trump administration even took to combat disinformation, including Senator Rob Portman and his bills against deepfakes and, you know, funding the Global Engagement Center at the State Department. So to say that I'm just a partisan actor was, was wildly out of context. And then beyond that, it wasn't just, you know, these mischaracterizations of of my work but it was death threats against my family over the last three weeks i have have maybe had one or two days i didn't report a violent threat something like we're coming for you and your family
0: well look no one should make violent threats period i wonder if a bunch of right-wingers who are disenchanted with sweet nina if they had just found her address posted it on the Internet, and then all gone to her house screaming F-bombs into megaphones, would that be the type of engagement, the type of expression of passion that the White House, for example, would be defending? Because that seems to be their standard when it comes to Supreme Court justices. (laughs) So don't threaten people. It's vile. It's ugly. And those of us who live in the public spotlight to varying degrees experience it, including yours truly. I don't talk about it a lot, except it seems like when you get caught doing something on the left, when you are involved in something that people object to, the go-to move seems to be some bad people are now threatening me. Well, guess what? Bad people threaten basically all of us. That is not an excuse. It should not happen. But I'm more interested in the beginning part of that answer that we just heard together. She has prided herself in her career. I'm quoting now, of being really nuanced and reasonable. She is a professional, ladies and gentlemen. How dare, how dare these detractors of our sweet Nina, America's sweetheart, how dare they suggest that she is anything other than the utmost of professionals. She is a serious person who demands to be taken seriously
1: It's how you hide a little idle lie. It's how you hide a little idle lie. It's how you hide a little idle lie, 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 lie when Rudy Giuliani shared that intel from Ukraine. Or when TikTok influencers say COVID can cause pain. They're laundering disinfo when we really should take note and not support their lies with our wallet, voice, or vote. Oh.
0: It's the O oh! at the very end that really sells the professionalism to me. That's the type of work product that I expect from a nuanced, reasonable person, to quote her. And she said, I've, I've briefed Republicans and Democrats, she said, even with a laugh, even the Trump administration. Huh. Here's the thing. If your whole argument now is, I'm just this down-the-middle professional. She said, to say that I'm a partisan actor was wildly out of context. She's on MSNBC with chris hayes now i know chris a little bit he's a nice guy very smart borderline communist i mean it would have really been chef's kiss if she had gone to joy Reid. i wish she had gone to joy honestly but this is a left-wing show on a left-wing network which is where she shows up to get the friendly interview to commiserate with her tribe This is where she chose to go because she's one of them, obviously. You look at her Twitter feed through the years. This is what the Washington Post and what's-her-name Lorenz was all mad about, people digging up social media posts to cause controversy, which, as I pointed out yesterday, is the entire business model of Taylor Lorenz at the Washington Post, previously the New York Times, previously some other place. She just torches the bridges as she goes. But that's what she does. It's her whole beat Quote unquote, is doing exactly that. And people did it to Nina Jankowicz and found a bunch of tweets. Turns out she's a partisan Democrat who spreads misinformation and disinformation when it suits her partisan agenda. We all have blind spots. We all make mistakes. Hers fl- flowed consistently in one direction because that's how she thinks, how she votes. Obviously. To say I'm just a partisan actor, wildly out of context. Oh, really? Is it wildly out of context to quote verbatim these tweets from Sweet Nina? 2016, I joined 100-plus Dems and Michelle Kwan to make calls for at Hillary Clinton tonight in Virginia. Hashtag I'm with her. Hashtag stronger together. Here's another one from the home stretch of that campaign 2016. Reminder America is already great. Hashtag Stronger Together. Hashtag I'm with her. How could any of these disinfo peddlers look at all of her body of work and conclude that she is perhaps not a serious, nuanced, scrupulously nonpartisan actor? How could we? How dare we? There's a thread from Santi Ruiz, who also looked into her work in this space, in the disinformation combating space. And he writes this, Other disinformation professionals thought Jankowicz was a rube and said so publicly. In a fine-tooth analysis for The Bulwark, actual EU diplomatic professional Monica Richter broke down claims in Jankowicz's book on Russian disinformation. The piece is worth reading in full. Jankowitz consistently gets basic facts wrong, not just out of laziness, but because two out of her seven interview sources are themselves actual Russian disinformation. Jankowitz has a track record of being suckered by false, debunked claims about disinformation, that Hunter Biden's laptop was a Russian plant, or that the Trump quote "P tape was real. None of this made its way into the Washington Post piece, of course. And Lorenz, the writer of that piece, has a track record of false claims. So Sweet Nina is out. She can't believe it. She's getting such a raw deal. She's just a nuanced, reasonable, nonpartisan professional. As her record clearly states and clearly demonstrates... According to her, the person who apparently has just an unfailing nose for misinformation. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Oh, good night again, sweet Nina. Maybe you'll give another interview. I'm holding out for joy. We'll see. We'll take a break. We'll come right back. Just getting started. It's Thursday on The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back.
3: Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services. Marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now, you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you, it's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house
0: I'm Guy Benson. I want to give you a quick update out of Pennsylvania in that Senate primary on the Republican side, and the update is sort of that there isn't one. So there have been some votes being counted, and last I saw, I've been checking pretty religiously some of the people who are following this on a granular level, McCormick and his campaign have eaten into the already very small lead that Dr. Oz had late, late, late on election night, early the next morning. And there are still lots of votes to be counted, tens of thousands of votes to be counted. It seems like the fact that they are mail ballots or absentee ballots could favor McCormick and they are from favorable areas to McCormick. But again, that's just conjecture. That's just sort of. Projections based on crude math. Things could break differently. Oz could hang on. He could pat his lead. The lead could disappear. We don't know. It's guesswork. I saw that Dave Wasserman, who's really smart on this stuff, he believes that the final margin, once all of this counting happens, will be less than 1,000 votes in either direction. Either one could end up ahead. He thinks maybe slightly more likely it would be Oz. But it will certainly fall within the recount threshold of 0.5% of a difference. That's going to happen. So there's going to be a recount. But I think it's just, I'm sorry, I think it is unacceptable that in the United States of America, the most advanced nation in the world, we are on a Thursday after a Tuesday election, late in the day on Thursday, and we still don't even have the initial count of who would be the initial winner before the recount starts. That system in Pennsylvania, and it's even worse in New York and California and elsewhere. It's just—it's not acceptable. It does not work. It undermines faith in the outcome and the results. People need to adopt the Florida model. I'm going to keep saying it. We'll take a break. We'll come right back with Peter Ducey.
2: You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson.
0: GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free every day here on the program, which airs between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern nationwide and around the world. And it's good that it's around the world. You can listen wherever you are, even very far flung parts of our globe, which is why I'm sure our next guest has just been listening to the opening monologue on his phone from Seoul, South Korea. Peter Ducey, Fox News Channel's White House correspondent, joins us now. Peter, welcome back to the show. And what time is it over there? Early, early morning?
4: Happy Friday, actually, from Seoul, guy. It's uh, (laughs) 4.30 in the morning here tomorrow, Friday.
0: Wow. Well, we're talking to you from the future, which is very exciting. And uh, we're very grateful that you are... Fair enough, and we're grateful that you're awake and, and joining us here because you must be all, I don't know, turned inside out in terms of your internal clock. So let's get right to it. You are over there because of this trip, the president in Asia. What's the itinerary for him? What is the White House trying to get out of this first presidential visit of this administration to the Far East?
4: Well, they have been emphasizing uh, the, the strength of, our partnerships with countries in Asia that are not China. And so they want to get the leaders of South Korea, Japan, and Australia together to present a united front against Australia or towards Australia. But uh, yesterday, right before we left, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, was teasing that there might be intel about a North Korean nuclear test or a North Korean nuclear ballistic missile, uh, hypersonic or ballistic missile test uh, while the president is here. And if that happens, that's going to be the story. So they can talk all they want about China and about economic ties. But if North Korea starts launching stuff off 30 miles away, then that's all that anybody's going to want to talk about.
0: Yeah, and since they're in that Pacific Rim region I believe there are Australian elections coming up. That's a very angry electorate down there. So I think the conservatives might be in some trouble. But I guess they'll be represented at some of these summits. Is there any talk about Taiwan and and what the posture of the president might be toward Taiwan on this trip? If that's the signal that he's trying to send about, you know, a a buttress against China or a hedge against China, do the Taiwanese play into this or is that too much of a hot potato?
4: I It seems like it might be too much of a hot potato so far, although we do expect to get some more details from uh, the president's plane. They're going to do a press briefing on there with those reporters uh, any minute now. It's interesting, though, that you brought up the Australian elections. They came all this way to have a meeting with the Australians as a quarter of the the so-called quad, and uh, because of those elections, it's possible that there might not be a representative here. Like they might not know who to send <laughs> or they might not have the right, right person to send. And the White House the White House knows it. So we'll see what happens there. It could
0: it could be a lame duck Australian administration depending on what happens here. Uh in a matter of days <clears throat> down under. Peter, staying on the foreign policy front, the president was at the White House earlier, back in this neck of the woods In Washington, D.C., although I'm doing the show from Nashville, I'm a lot closer to D.C. than you are right now. He (laughs) welcomed two foreign leaders to the White House from Finland and from Sweden. Obviously, a lot of conversation about the expansion of NATO. This was clearly some sign of solidarity here from the president. The Russians are not happy about it. We know the Turkish government has been balking at this idea. What can you tell us about that, even though you are half a world away?
4: Well, we know that this was apparently an easy call. We're told that the president talked to his national security team about uh, these European countries joining NATO, and everybody said they thought it would be a a net positive for NATO and for the U.S. But what's so notable is that Ukraine was asking to get into NATO a couple months ago, and we've been pumping them full of weapons and cash, uh, another $40 billion uh the White House wants to get over there as fast as possible. Uh, yeah, past so the seven With today. all that money, yeah, we we trust them with all that money uh, and the firepower, but we don't trust them to be a part of NATO. And so, I, I think that is an overlooked storyline that they're going to have to somehow resolve that.
0: Meanwhile, Peter, on the home front, you've been asking some questions at the briefings this week. There's a brand new press secretary, Ms. Jean Pierre. And we played on this show, your exchange with her, about a very simple question about whether or not raising taxes or how raising taxes on corporations, which is what they say they want to do, would bring down costs for American consumers. How would that help the inflation problem? And I still cannot make heads or tails out of any part of her answer. I wonder if she sort of turned to the wrong tab in the binder. She was reading Stuff to you that that had nothing to do with the question. Uh, have you gotten any more detail on an actual responsive reply to what you were asking, or is is that the White House position? Whatever that was.
4: No, that's the White House position, and I, I would say it was a simple question, but it was also Kareem's first day at the yep. mic, and so I'm sure that, that that was just a first day thing, and that uh, we we will get a straight answer about inflation at some point because it doesn't look like it's going away anytime soon.
0: No, there might've been some, some jitters there. And I made that point on the air in fairness to her day one, big job. She's been the deputy for a while. She has briefed before. She's not a total newbie to all of this, but you know, the, the pressure and all of that still, I just don't know. So I've, I've, I'll concede those points. On the other hand, the number one issue in the country is inflation and it's not like you were throwing a fastball there, right? It was a very easy question to at least anticipate, you would think, like, hey, we want to do this thing, policy-wise, that a lot of economists believe would actually make the problem worse. How can we justify doing that in the age of inflation? You know, what's the what's the excuse or what's the explanation, whatever word you want to use? And it was not like a slow lob over the plate, but it wasn't you know too much zip on that pitch from you and it was like she had never held a baseball bat to continue this tortured analogy uh maybe that was just because it was her first day here but i just don't know how you take that job in the moment that we're in and be like oh my gosh this question from fox news about inflation let me read some talking points about collective bargaining and climate change what
4: yeah i i don't know and I uh... I think they were expecting a lot more questions about things that they wanted to talk about, like the president's trip here, the president, uh, when I was asking her that, was on his way to Buffalo. Those are the things I think that they were wanting to talk about. Um, they don't want to talk about inflation because it's a it's a killer for them, and it's the one thing that in an election year, the president is making his top priority, uh, but they're if the president is going to say, my number one domestic priority is combating inflation, then they're going to just have to explain uh, – there, there's
0: a – there's
4: a, and then uh, uh-huh. from White House officials, and we just haven't gotten <laughs>
0: well, that yet. Because you can't say my top priority – I guess you can. It just doesn't really persuade anyone. You can't say, oh, our top priority, my top priority, the president's top priority is inflation. we got to lick inflation. This is really bad for Americans. And part of our solutions – are to raise the cost of doing business on employers and corporations, which pass down those costs to consumers. That's what they always do. Consumers can least afford that these days. So raising taxes on job creators and raising the cost of doing business, that's part of the plan. And another part of the plan is to spend trillions more in new federal spending. These are contradictory to the stated goal. And getting questions about that, first of all, they should be getting a lot more of those questions and not just from you, but it should at least be something that they might anticipate coming from someone like you. And uh, I guess, at least on Monday, that was not terribly anticipated. Then we've got the gas prices issue, which is not unrelated, obviously. You were quoting some of these studies about thousands of dollars now for the average family going out the door to pay for gas on an annual basis J.P. Morgan estimating that gas prices could surpass $6 a gallon nationwide by August. For the first time ever, it's above $4 a gallon in all 50 states as of today. Uh, there are places in the country where gas stations are running out of fuel. Some areas are preparing for up to $10 a gallon potentially. I mean, this is such a huge problem It's not easily fixable by anyone, not any president, although I would argue they're making things worse needlessly and have been for a while. But when you were asking the White House about this exact topic as well, where do people go to get that money? How do they dig themselves out of this hole? I'm not really sure we heard much of an answer that was compelling or substantive there either.
4: No, and the the new number from that Yardini research group is – Five thousand dollars per year on average for gas. That is up from twenty eight hundred last year, and so uh, people aren't making an extra five thousand or an extra three thousand bucks, whatever it is, twenty five hundred bucks. And when everything else costs more, uh, people are going to continue to look to the White House because this president says he's you know more concerned with the middle class than Wall Street and billionaires and. Uh, the middle class are the one it, you know. You hear about people saying, "Oh, well, inflation is a regressive tax." What does that mean? Well, it hurts people that need to buy gas every day, and maybe it's just not breaking through at the White House. I know not a lot, not everybody that works at the White House drives, <laughs> so they might uh, maybe just, just hop on the bike. Not, <laughs> yeah, uh, or you know, they've emphasized well. Uh, we want a green future. We're going to make the whole federal fleet green. So buy an electric car. Uh, just do it now, quick. Gas is gas is a lot, uh, but if people don't ha- if people have so much less money because they need to buy like chicken for their family, uh, they're not going to rush out to buy an electric car.
0: And also, electricity costs money too, and sometimes those rates explode and skyrocket. That was, in fact, a stated goal of Barack Obama when he was running for president was to skyrocket electricity rates to wean us off of coal. I mean, this is all part of a bigger tapestry of policy direction, ideological goals. And part of the problem that they're running into at the White House is they and their allies have said things out loud about what they want to do in transforming the economy and the climate that are very problematic when it comes to average people just trying to make through their day and pay you know money for basic necessities and those two things are colliding in a way that politically I think is pretty perilous for the democrats one more policy question that has been asked a lot of the white house recently the shortage on baby formula you know the president now says that he's going to invoke what the the some defense production act or whatever the whatever the terminology yeah. is here What's what's the White House? It seems like they're constantly playing catch-up on stuff. They said, oh, no, no, we've been on this for months, but if that's the case, what do the results say about that? The results would not be great if they've been on this for months. They might just be saying that because they've been caught flat-footed. What is the White House at least saying that they're doing to try to alleviate that concern?
4: Well, in addition to using the Defense Production Act, they are trying to cut some red tape to get formula, which is so regulated uh, from overseas into the States. And they're trying to figure out how to make it so that uh, the ingredients get to factories here so that it can be made, but uh, in the U S but it's still going to take like six weeks with all that um, until the production is stabilized and babies are getting sick. And that it's, it's a real problem. Nancy Pelosi said this week that she thinks there may be indictments ahead. So this might not just be a problem uh, with a supply chain or with a, a recall. It could be criminal. And if that's the case, uh, this is going to be a, a much bigger issue.
0: Yeah, and let's say they are able to somehow smooth this out, because I saw someone from the FDA was making the round saying, oh, this will be resolved in weeks, and then on the same day said it could be months. That might hit right in the middle of the summer, which is when gas prices are expected to be the worst, potentially. So it's just sort of like, you know, one, it's like whack-a-mole for these guys, and it hasn't been going terribly well for them. Finally, Peter, a totally unrelated, I did enjoy your social media post. You came out of hibernation on Twitter. You post, and you also did it on Instagram, <laughs> elsewhere, the photo, the sort of the farewell frenemy photo of you and Jen Psaki on her last day. And I posted it. I retweeted it. I thought it was sort of a nice, classy move and sort of like, you know, you're both showing that you can remain respectful and have something of a friendly relationship despite, you know, all the theatrics and the outside, you know, commentary, et cetera. The response that I got from a ton of people is, Is Ducey seven feet tall, or is she three feet tall? What's going on there? Because I've met both of you, and that photo sort of warped my brain a little bit. It was like that Jimmy and Rosalind (laughs) Carter photo from a while back, if you remember that. I was like, what is happening here?
4: Uh, You know, it's funny about that post. The first thing that I heard about it was from my mom, and she said, "Uh, Peter, Guy Benson commented on your Instagram. Oh, I'll have to check that out. Um, (laughs) So I'm like 6'5", and Jen is about – Five foot, so I'm a little above average height, and uh, she is a little uh, uh, probably. Uh, well, yeah, uh, and she's about five feet tall, and so uh, there is a there is a significant height difference, difference, but you never see it because she's always when we have been seen, seen together, and I think that's the first photo that just like that's the first time that she and I have stood and posed for a photo together, um, just the two of us. And so, uh, yeah, there you have it. Uh, when she yeah. is not on a platform and I'm not sitting down, that's what it looks like.
0: Right. A, if I'm doing my math correct, a 17-inch difference there is significant. I uh, Also, also yeah. maybe, like, the angle may have exacerbated the, the perception of the uh, difference, but I think the the message of the photo is what matters, and I did enjoy it, and I did comment on your Instagram, and I'm glad that your mother – Uh, noticed and drew that to your attention peter maybe get some sleep i don't know what your schedule is like over there in seoul he's in south korea covering the president's trip forthcoming uh, to the pacific rim and the far east and peter stay safe out there and we will talk to you when you're back dc side yes sir all right thanks guy that's Peter Ducey, Fox News Channel's White House correspondent, joining us live from South Korea. We will step aside and come right back. It is The Guy Benson Show.
2: Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show.
0: Back here on The Guy Benson Show, I mentioned in that conversation with Peter Ducey that the Senate today passed – the Ukraine aid bill, forty billion dollars. I support it. You can squabble about the dollar amount; was it too high? Some Republicans made that case. Ted Cruz, I think, addressed those points well in his speech in support of the legislation. It was overwhelming. Meanwhile, the U.S. embassy in Kiev is going to resume operations. The American flag was raised again outside, sort of a a moving sight and a powerful symbolism as. A bunch of Western countries are resuming their diplomatic missions in Kyiv in solidarity with the Ukrainians. One more point from that last segment as well. I mentioned the Australian election was coming up soon. In fact, it is this weekend on Saturday. The ruling party, the conservatives, trailing in the polls, although it has tightened to pretty darn close so we'll see if scott morrison's government might squeak it out and survive it's tough though being in charge during covid we shall see another hour of the guy benson show coming up dr marty McCarry is next
2: live from the most powerful city in the world unconventional talk from a fresh unconventional conservative guy benson show
0: From Nashville, Tennessee, Nash Vegas. I'm Guy Benson. Excited to be here and with all of you every weekday, regardless of where we're broadcasting from, wherever you're listening from, we are grateful. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern, Monday through Friday. And the podcast is free all of those days, plus bonus Benson on the weekend. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website, GuyBensonShow.com, at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. All that is free, of course. All this great content, no charge to you. As we begin our middle hour, a Fox News alert. The sell-off on Wall Street continues. The Dow closing down 236 points today. That's on top of the huge sell-off yesterday. So it's been a rough, rough week up in New York. Dow ending today at 31,253. With us now is Dr. Marty McCarry, Fox News contributor, surgeon, and professor of health policy at Johns Hopkins and that university's School of Public Health. He's author of the book, The Price We Pay, What Broke American Healthcare*. at Marty McCary on Twitter. And doctor, welcome back. Good to be with you, Guy. I want to start not on COVID, but on this monkeypox thing. Like What is this? I've seen headlines about it. I've seen some of the images, which are pretty gnarly and nasty looking. I think Americans are like, here we go again, something gross and sort of exotic and scary. What can you tell us in terms of the basics of monkeypox? How nervous should people be?
5: (laughs) Well, we've all got raw memories and nobody wants to hear about another infectious disease. But the good news is, and I'll say this is sort of the headline I'd want people to know, is that monkeypox is not a very contagious infection at all. Matter of fact, human-to-human transmission is extremely difficult, and there have been sporadic cases really since 1958 when it was first described in the Dominican Republic. There was a bit of a outbreak, if you will, in Nigeria in 2017 of 450 cases. We've got one in Massachusetts reported yesterday that we know of, Europe has reported a couple dozen cases and looking into some more. Some have not had travel outside of the UK, which is causing some to wonder maybe that it's, it'd start there. But it's a two to four week flu like illness condition where you get bumps on your skin, and that's characteristic of pox like infections. Again, does not spread readily or easily among humans.
0: So I had read that we actually had a monkeypox outbreak in the United States a number of years ago. And there were maybe a few dozen people who had it, and it kind of petered out. Is that right? Because this is, I've heard of chickenpox. I've heard of smallpox. This one, I, I guess I hadn't heard of.
5: It's believed that it has been in circulation a while, and maybe even back in the day before the smallpox vaccine that it was in uh, a lot of circulation, but that the smallpox vaccine has cross-immunity to this. And that's really sort of suppressed it out there in the world.
0: Now, people of a certain age would have a smallpox vaccine, yes, but younger people might not. I got chickenpox when I was younger. I'm just sort of trying to figure out if you're under a certain age in the United States, do you have any immunity against something like monkeypox or not really? Are are there vaccines out there that people could if they're very nervous they could rush out and get
5: uh I don't know of any available vaccine for it um even before the advent of the vaccine the outbreaks have been very limited you know the if you look at the history of influenza viruses some of them are you know catastrophic and widespread even pandemic levels you look at the history of this monkeypox vaccine monkeypox virus you're talking about limited outbreaks where it has broken out.
0: Okay, and if someone, you know, unfortunately for them, does find themselves with monkeypox, even though it's not terribly easily transmissible and relatively small pockets, whatever, if you end up with it, you said two to four weeks of flu-like symptoms and then these, these markings on your body. Uh, is this a lethal disease? Is this very likely to be survived, even if you don't have any type of pre-existing immunity? And do those symptoms go away? Do the do the bumps and markings go away? What could people expect in the unlikely event, it seems right now, of contracting this virus?
5: Well, I would say that um, we don't really know. Now, there's been a suggestion that in previous monkeypox outbreaks, up to one in 10 people have succumbed or died from that infection, which is not that dissimilar from smallpox. Yes, there have been cases, as you alluded to, in the United States. Some people think there were about 70 cases in the Midwest back in 2003. But I would say at this point, the characteristic is you've got the bumps on the skin and the flu-like illness. If you just have flu-like symptoms, chances are you have COVID or you've got one of the other many respiratory pathogens that are competing with COVID right now, and I would not be alarmed. But if you have these bumps on your skin, particularly if you're somewhere in central Massachusetts right now where this other case has been described, that's when you'd want to call a doctor.
0: Okay. Now, on COVID, we've seen the headlines picking up again, health officials sounding the alarm, rising COVID infections, hospitalizations rather, starting to tick back up in certain parts of the country. How much of this is something that people need to be alarmed about? How much of this is just seasonality, where I guess, you know, it'll be the South getting hit soon. Right now it's the Northeast. And it seems like we're going to be maybe in these cycles forever or for, you know, an indefinite period of time. I guess these are not mutually exclusive questions. You can be concerned about cyclical seasonal flare-ups. But what worries me is, are we going to start – putting back into place so-called mitigation steps that don't really help that much and are disruptive to people's lives, to the lives of children, to the economy and all this other stuff. Like, where do we stop freaking out over changes that may not be unexpected? I'm just trying to wrap my head around how to think about this.
5: Well, the case numbers that we're seeing right now are part of what I believe will be the ebb and flow of this infection that will uh, cycle, and with seasonality, it's got its own seasonality. You know, in the summer, that's when the South tends to get more affected. People move indoors with air conditioning, given the the airborne nature of it. But I do have a similar concern that you suggested, Guy, and that is that people have one polar extreme or the other in terms of their approach to COVID, and that is completely freak out and try to achieve a zero COVID strategy, or they are completely in disregard of it and have no problems coughing or sneezing next to somebody at work, which is the pre-COVID lifestyle. We got to just use common sense, which means if, look, if you're sick, stay home. If you've got symptoms and you need to be out there for some reason to pick up a prescription or do something essential, wear a high quality mask. The cloth masks don't do anything and um, use common sense. If you look at the hospitalization numbers, they're not proportionally increasing to the case numbers. And remember, we may only be capturing one in 10 cases because of home testing. So okay. we're seeing waves of cases. You may have heard stories. Most people in Northern California right now know of somebody or they've gotten sick themselves, maybe at 20% of that population, the virus is circulating in. That is m- what we may see in a bad flu- uh, common cold season. And that's what we should expect right now. When we see schools react, and this is in part because we've never evaluated the lockdowns scientifically. We've never done that appropriate evaluation of cloth masks and school closures and the downsides of locking down businesses. If we did that proper evaluation, we would see the harm in it. My uh, nephew is in public school in North Arlington, There's no sixth grade school graduation because of, you know, so-called COVID risk. The parents are not allowed to the play. They don't have the end of year picnic. So we're magnifying the mental health crisis that we know is worsening. And we talk about dealing with mental health like we need to mop up the floor while the spigot is still on. So we've got to use a reasonable approach. You wouldn't shut down every swimming pool in the United States, because of risk aversion, we accept a little bit of risk in society to have our livelihoods.
0: Let me ask you about booster shots. I have not been boosted. I got my two shots as early as I could last spring, just about, in fact, just about a year ago, little little more than a year ago. I then had COVID during the Delta wave last summer, I had a pretty rough reaction to my second shot, much worse than I actually had when I got COVID in August. I have therefore been reluctant to go and get a third shot, given my hybrid immunity. But I also know people who have had COVID and had three or four shots who then get COVID again. One of my friends got COVID a second time after being vaxxed and boosted, and this round of COVID was actually worse than the first round of COVID, which was pre vaccine. So I, I think there's just that's part of the reason why people are so concerned. They see and hear so many different little anecdotes about how the virus affects people differently on different timetables. I think that does play into some of the anxiety here, which is understandable, right? Like what's your guidance on the boosters and then maybe just a reaction to this broader point about people not really knowing what to expect from shots how long the immunity would last and then if they get it again will it be worse will it be better would omicron still give you long covid even if you're if you're vaccinated I mean, there's just a lot of stuff swirling out there
5: well look you're young you're healthy at least when we've interacted in person you appear to be a very healthy person and taking that to be the case you don't need a booster the booster has never been demonstrated scientifically to provide a benefit against severe disease, hospitalization, or death in people who are younger, and as a matter of fact, this is the basically the rationale of the FDA expert advisory committee that had expressed many of these views in public but was shut out the The fDA bypassed their advisors because they knew they were not on board with third and fourth doses in people under fifty and sixty five and so we have this quagmire now where you have a broad public health recommendation, but many experts are saying the data does not support it. And you can only cry wolf so many times. You know, when we say everyone has to get boosted down to age 12, guess what? People are smart, they see through it. They know the vaccine only provides after the initial primary series, transient protection against acquiring the infection for a matter of weeks. You can only cry wolf so many times. And so I don't recommend the booster for healthy people under 65, And I think the FDA advisory committee would support that. The natural immunity is very effective. And ignoring that is still one of the inexplicable sins of public health officials.
0: Yeah, it's complicated out there. And people should absolutely talk to their doctors about their particular risk profile. That's what I've been doing, uh, including conversations like this on national radio with Dr. Marty McCary. Doctor, always appreciate it. Thank you for your time. We'll step aside. Come right back on The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We are back here on The Guy Benson Show. I was having an interesting discussion with someone who follows polls very closely about the 2022 election. And he wasn't sure whether or not this is going to be a big Republican wave year. And look, anything can happen. Fortunes can shift, although they're sort of running out of time over there on the Democratic side. The generic ballot only gets you so far. There are still some very important decisions to be made by voters like who the nominees will be in some very important races. And even in big wave years in the past, Republicans in particular seem to blow some very winnable races by nominating people who are low-quality candidates and manage to lose anyway. So there's a lot of things that could go sideways, and I'm not interested in making any predictions this far out in terms of the scope of the wave, but I think it's pretty clear overall the direction that this is headed. And the direction is pain. For the Democrats. We talked about Democrats being in disarray yesterday in our opening monologue. You can go and listen to it if you missed it at GuyBensonShow.com or the free podcast. But when you combine the data that we have on polling, and it's not too soon to look at the polling significantly. We're getting into late May of an election year. It's not irrelevant. It's not determinative. It never is. But and it's still early. Yes, you get past the summer holiday Early fall, that's where it really matters. But you get a sense of where we're at in terms of the numbers. And then you compare those numbers and the trends to what people refer to as the fundamentals of an election cycle. And the fundamentals are just atrocious for the Democrats. Think about what happened in Virginia and New Jersey. Both blue states, that have only gotten bluer in recent years, both of those states swung 12 to 13 points in the red direction last fall. In Virginia, that was enough for Republicans to sweep the state. In New Jersey, an even bluer place, Republicans made some gains, but they couldn't topple the governor, but they came awfully close, much closer than people were expecting. If you extrapolate what happened last year across the country, roughly speaking, and I would say the fundamentals have only gotten worse for the Democrats since last November, that would suggest it's going to be a very tough year for them. You look at the economy, you look at the satisfaction level of the country, you look at the issues that are driving the cycle, you look at history. And the first year of a new president, or the first midterm, I should say, of a new president, especially with the president's party completely in power, with the country pissed off and dissatisfied, all of this stuff lines up. All of the fundamentals plus the data are all pointed in the same direction, which is a red wave. How tall does the wave get? That, I think, is totally debatable. It could be a relatively small one where Republicans win back the House, not that impressively, but they do it, and the Senate doesn't flip and governors are sort of a mixed bag. Is that plausible? Yes. Is it plausible that the thing builds into a tsunami and wipes out the Democrats and it's 2010 and 2014 combined? Yeah, that could also happen. Mitch McConnell, who's not an overstatement guy, says it's the worst polling he's ever seen for the Democrats in his career. And he's got a lot of inside stuff. But I think it is really hard to argue that this is not going to be something of a wave year based on all of the factors. And the data point that I think matters the most this far out, if we're looking at polling, is presidential approval. There was an NBC poll came out on Sunday that has Joe Biden at 39% approval, he was 16, 17 points underwater in that poll, with a majority disapproving. Here's a new one from NPR and Marist, almost identical, 39% approved, 39. That is worse than Barack Obama was in 2010. That is worse or equivalent to where Donald Trump was in 2018. 39% approval, 56% disapproval. He's underwater in the NPR Marist poll. PBS also on this, among men by 30 points. He's underwater with women only by five. Independence, 33 62, almost two to one. He's down by almost 20 points among parents. Young people are deeply dissatisfied, deeply alienated. I'm not sure they're going to rush out and vote Republican. They might just not rush out and vote at all. Suburbanites, he's underwater by 20 points. So, Again, I don't know how many more flashing red lights you need towards a flashing red November, at least for now. As we continue to track it on The Guy Benson Show, we will be right back after this.
2: GuyBensonShow.com.
0: We're back here on The Guy Benson Show. Very happy to have each and every one of you on board for the ride between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday. GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast. I would like to read to you a piece from The New York Times, which was published yesterday. And it goes to an issue that has been obviously a significant pet issue a bugaboo of mine, which is school closures during the pandemic. And it's a bugaboo, not because I have kids yet, but because many of my friends do, and they have been horrified to see what has happened in their communities. And then the data continues to pile up. School closures, mitigation efforts, quote-unquote, masking, forcible masking for no reason in schools. The list goes on. The harms that were inflicted on kids needlessly – For well over a year, again, I give a big mulligan, grace period, fog of war pass for, let's say, March, April, May, June, July, August, the first six months, the first half year of the pandemic. Let's be generous. But based on the data that we had, the information that we had, the evidence that we had, the science, not capital S science, actual science, into the summer of 2020 was more than enough to derive very important lessons for the well-being of children and their education and their development when it came to closures and even masking in time for the 2020-2021 school year. And in many cases, and many places, overwhelmingly in blue areas dominated by the Democratic Party and teachers' unions, those data points, and pieces of evidence were ignored aggressively to the extreme detriment of the children living in those areas. And I think some of that was just rank partisanship. Donald Trump said the school should open, so they decided, well, we're not going to do that because hashtag resist. They were deeply harming the children in their communities. They were just collateral damage in this singular, close-minded Blinders wearing anti Trump, really performance art that sadly translated into real life decisions and real life deleterious impact for millions of kids in this country. Then there was like the safetyism stuff, the politicized science, the teachers' unions actually exerting their control over the process of deriving science. We've learned that from leaked documents and emails the teachers' union bosses, altering the scientific guidelines of the CDC based on a political agenda, not based on the data. We've been through all of this. I'm just explaining, recapping why this has bothered me so much and continues to because some of the harms are still ongoing. The same mistakes are being either undertaken again, where they never stopped, or they are being contemplated again based on you know the latest uptick or a surge in a community the bad anti-science people with their terrible ideas come right back and raise their hands and say oh it's time to make the same mistakes again and amazingly those are the people who feel like they're the ones protecting kids in some cases or at least that's what they try to claim the opposite is true so with all that said the new york times story That I referenced a few minutes ago is entitled with plunging enrollment, a seismic hit to public schools. The pandemic has supercharged the decline in the nation's public school system in ways that experts say will not be easily reversed. So here's how the story begins. In New York City, the nation's largest school district has lost some 50,000 students over the past two years. In Michigan, enrollment remains more than 50,000 below pre-pandemic levels from big cities to the rural Upper Peninsula. They say that in suburban parts of the country, there have been some of these effects as well. They talk about California in the story. And, quote, since school funding is tied to enrollment, cities that have lost many students, including Denver, Albuquerque, Oakland, are now considering combining classrooms, laying off teachers, or shutting down entire schools. Isn't it interesting? And I'll just note, by the way, New York City, Michigan, California, Denver, Albuquerque, Oakland, these places have something in common. Let's see if you can figure out what that might be. But I was going to say, it's interesting that the people who at least purport to be or claim to be such vigorous defenders and champions of public education to the point that they will viciously attack school choice because they care that much about public education. There's a great overlap between those folks and people who spent a year and a half essentially arguing that in-person classroom instruction by teachers in public schools was actually non-essential during a pandemic that actually wasn't really affecting children. Major overlap there in the Venn diagram. Altogether, the New York Times reports, America's public schools have lost at least 1.2 million students since 2020, according to a recently published national survey. State enrollment figures show no signs of a rebound to previous national levels anytime soon. So those are the trends. 1.2 million gone. Kids out of public schools. A broad decline was already underway in the nation's public school system as rates of birth and immigration have fallen, particularly in cities. But the coronavirus crisis supercharged that drop in ways that experts say will not be easily reversed. I love this line. No overriding explanation has emerged yet for the widespread drop-off. But experts, and thank God for them, point to two potential causes. You think? Let's start with number one. Some parents became so fed up with remote instruction or mask mandates that they started homeschooling their children or sending them to private or parochial schools that largely remained open during the pandemic. Huh. That sounds to me, again, I'm just a, a simple boy, that sounds to me like an overriding explanation. They closed schools for a year and a half. A bunch of parents couldn't take it anymore, their kids were failing. Their kids were struggling, falling behind. They had to go to work, but their kids were at home staring at laptops, or in many cases not, that being the problem. Then, after this whole failed experiment, 1.2 million kids at least are gone from the public schools, overwhelmingly, disproportionately in the places that were closed the longest. That sounds like an overriding explanation. Again, just spitballing. They say other families were thrown into such turmoil by pandemic-related job losses that their children simply dropped out, which is yet another response and ripple effect of failed pandemic, lockdown, and other restriction policies. No overriding explanation. That claim in the Times story, which overall I think is pretty good and highlights a very important issue, is actually contradicted and undermined within the story itself as you read on. For example, quote, In large urban areas, the drop-off has been particularly acute. The Los Angeles Unified School District's non-charter schools lost some 43,000 students over the past two school years. Enrollment in the Chicago schools has dropped by 25,000 in that time frame. What do L.A. and Chicago have in common with the other cities and places that I've mentioned? New York City, Oakland, Denver, Albuquerque, L.A., Chicago. Gosh, it's a mystery. I'm just scratching my head here. What's the common denominator there? What's the thread that links these all together? Huh. I would note that L.A. and Chicago were some of the worst. Remember, they had the school closures in Chicago this school year. With the teachers making all of their demands. Remember that whole episode? Los Angeles probably had the most draconian and insane policies, maybe anywhere in the country. And go figure, tens of thousands of kids are streaming for the exits via their families. So they continue to undermine the thesis about no overarching explanation. They do mention certain suburban areas and certain areas. Of the country, but listen to this. This is a crucial paragraph that I think really just lands the plane for us on what's going on here and gives us that overarching lesson that apparently eludes the New York Times. Quote In some states where schools eschewed remote instruction, Florida, for instance, enrollment has not only rebounded but remains robust. An analysis by the American Enterprise Institute concluded last month that remote instruction was a major driver around the country, with enrollment falling most in districts most likely to have delayed their return to in-person classrooms. The Times continues. Private schools have also seen gains in enrollment. Federal headcounts have not yet been released But both the National Association of Independent Schools and the National Catholic Educational Association have reported increases that total about 73,000 K-12 students during the past two years. At the same time, some families are leaving their local public schools not because they are abandoning the system altogether, but because they have moved to other parts of the country that are more affordable. And I would add parts of the country that had their schools open and didn't shut kids out of classrooms to falter and fail on their own. It's just amazing, though, that it takes how many paragraphs in this time story, which, again, I'm not attacking the whole story. I think there's a lot of good information in here. They're like, huh, what's going on? They give all these examples, many of them in the deepest blue parts of the country, dominated by the Democratic Party and their patrons in the teachers' unions, and then we get to the other side of the coin. Wait, but in places like Florida... Where they had the schools open and they weren't forcing kids to try to learn on them. Enrollment not only rebounded but remains robust. And private school enrollment has surged. They're answering their own question. And they are defeating the claim that there's no overarching explanation to all of this. There is. It is screamingly obvious. It is staring all of us right in the face. And the evidence needed is sitting right here in the very same New York Times story. I'm not breaking any huge news to all of you. I just think it is very instructive, no pun intended, to look at the trajectories, look at the trends. 1.2 million kids gone from public schools, where they're leaving from, and where this problem didn't play out. And the story... Is crystal clear. It's interesting. My best friend, Mary Catherine Hamm, I co-wrote End of Discussion, that book with her a few years ago. We talked basically every day. She testified before Congress this week. She was invited to a subcommittee talking about the pandemic and women falling behind. This was convened by the Democrats because they wanted some excuse to spend, wait for it, more money. I know that will come as a shock to correct some of the problems that they created with their own policies. And Mary Catherine was invited by the committee Republicans to give another perspective. And she was telling me how viscerally angry the Democrats got when, time after time after time, she brought up school closures and school policies as contributing to, in a major way, this exact problem. Mary Catherine being the mother of three young girls, two of whom are school age. She relentlessly brought this issue up, and the Democrats were like, move on. We want to talk about the future. I was like, like, let's forget the massive cataclysmic policy failures driven by our party for the last two years that will have untold effects on millions of children for the rest of their lives. Let's move on to the next thing, which is us deciding to spend even more money on things given how much we've already screwed everything else up. If that sounds about right to you, same. By the way, one coda to all of this from the Wall Street Journal headline, billions in school COVID relief funds remain unspent. Of $122 billion in federal money set aside, this is from the Democrats' giant wasteful bill under Joe Biden, The 93% unspent could be lost if not used by the deadline. To which I say, good, this was an insane slush fund. And a lot of the money that was allocated, as you might recall, for reopening schools, whereas a bunch of schools that got no federal money, they reopened anyway, safely, just fine, all over the country. This was a slush fund to areas rewarding them for getting it wrong and ignoring the science. And a lot of the money wouldn't go out the door and wasn't scheduled to be allocated until the out years. Having nothing to do, like 2024, 2023, 2026, nothing to do with COVID at all. So 93% of that slush fund apparently is unspent. I say claw it back immediately and maybe put that money toward the things that they say they're bankrupt on. Oh, testing and vaccines and treatments. We have no money. We're all out of money. Go take some of the money that hasn't been spent... And redirect it. How about that? Instead of spending more and more and more and more. But that's the goal. It's the whole point. In this case, it's almost not about the ends. It's about the means. So I got all that off of my chest. Hopefully you have learned a thing or two. And I think the evidence here is just as clear cut as the science. And we can never allow the people who got this so wrong to live this down. This is a generation-shaping error on a vast scale. And the evidence supporting that thesis of mine continues to flow in every single day. And we're going to cover it right here on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back.
2: The Guy Benson Show. More next. It's a Guy Benson Show, Jim Crow on steroids, Georgia voter suppression update.
0: Back on the Guy Benson Show. Here's the story. Georgia has seen record-breaking turnout for early voting, despite passing an election security law last year that critics panned as voter suppression. And, of course, President Biden said it was worse than Jim Crow. Jim Crow on steroids. And yet, more than 539,000 Georgians have cast ballots in the primary As of Tuesday of this week, far outpacing the 182,000 plus at this point in the 2018 midterm cycle. I mean, that is just blowing those numbers out of the water. Jim Garrity at National Review dug into the data a little bit and found that among black voters, supposedly the victims of this racist voter suppression, black voter turnout has more than tripled in the early voting compared to 2018. More than tripled. Are you paying attention, Coca-Cola? Are you paying attention, Delta Airlines? Are you paying attention, Major League Baseball? All of whom bought into the left-wing lie about what they were doing in Georgia. Here is a graphic on the screen from MSNBC. MSNBC today. Georgia primary sees record early turnout. Wow. Go figure. It's almost as if the giant lie was completely, totally, laughably, embarrassingly wrong. Good for Brian Kemp, the governor down there for standing up to all of this. He's got his primary next week. Looks like he's gonna probably win in a blowout. The new Fox News poll has him up two to one over David Perdue. We'll see what happens next week. There is your voter suppression, Jim Crow on steroids 2.0 update, or whatever we're calling it, here on the Guy Benson show. Our final hour coming up, Andy McCarthy, on the Durham probe and the Sussman trial. That's straight ahead. Happy hour time on the Guy Benson Show. I am Guy Benson. Thank you very much for tuning in. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every single weekday. We are coming to you from the Central Time Zone today, Nashville, Tennessee. Glad to have you all along. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free of charge every day on demand. GuyBensonShow.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at GuyBensonShow. Same handle for both of those platforms. And this hour, sponsored by the Finnish long drink, what a plug we had for the long drink yesterday. I did the whole normal open, and sitting across from me for the segment was Senator Barrasso, who had just been in Finland dealing with NATO-related issues. And the potential joining of NATO, of Finland and also Sweden, and he jumped right in, segued beautifully. I don't think the Finnish long drink has ever had a U.S. senator help complete a plug for their product on the air, and that's just a guess that I've got. You can find out more about their beverage, which is delicious and refreshing, at thelongdrink.com. A crisp citrus soda with a premium liquor kick. 21 plus only, of course. Always drink responsibly. Thelongdrink.com as they expand nationwide. Joining us now is Andy McCarthy, Fox News contributor former federal prosecutor, author of multiple best-selling books, at Andrew C. McCarthy on Twitter. And, Andy, it is fantastic, as always, to have you back here. Guy, always great to be with you. Before we get into substance, I do have to ask you, and I understand this will not necessarily appeal to much of the country. However, my Yankees, your Mets, both playing almost magically well in these early days are these performances sustainable for these teams, do you think? You know, guy, I, I think you know, I really thought the Yankees were going to be
6: strong. I I I'm still suspicious of their pitching same. and I have I have the same feeling about the um the Mets. Um I, I try not to get too um enticed in May. <laughs> That's probably but a good they've idea. they've done these kind of these. – they've done these sort of magical things that, you know, every uh, generation or so you have a Met team that, uh, you know, does these unbelievable things like score seven runs in the ninth inning with two out to come back and win and that sort of thing. And those things are happening. So I'm cautiously um, optimistic. I'm trying to stop myself in May from getting too excited.
0: That's exactly right. I had no anticipation of the Yankees being this good. I know it's early, but – Not that early, right? There are dozens of games in. They're playing incredibly well. I don't know if it's sustainable. They're going to go on losing streaks and that sort of thing. Uh, So I'm excited. I'm enjoying it while it's happening. I'm also trying to tap the brakes on some of my New York area sports fan friends who are saying, oh, this is 2000 all over again. Subway World Series, here we come. Let's just uh, take a breath. Get back to me maybe in July or August. We can revisit the conversation. Andy, let's (laughs) shift to politics and this trial that you have been covering very closely. I was talking about it a little bit on TV last evening, and I understand the broad strokes. I understand largely what is at stake here. Last time, last week, we talked about the Sussman trial and the Durham probe. You were discussing and breaking down for us the narrow question in this trial versus the broader Let's say political conspiracy. I don't know if it's a criminal conspiracy, but there was clearly a political conspiracy to pull off one of the biggest dirty tricks in the history of modern American politics. As this trial has now gotten underway, as we've seen some of the arguments, the defenses, the testimony, what have you gleaned? Let's start with the narrow legal question Sussman's guilt, and then we can widen out that conversation from there.
6: Yeah, Guy, I would say two things. First, um, there's an incredible difference in the case between now and when it was first indicted. I really now think it would have been a much weaker case if they did not have the text message that uh, that Sussman sent to Jim Baker, the FBI uh, general counsel at the time, where he explicitly says, uh, I'm not representing a client, just want to help the bureau – I think the Sussman defense, when this case was indicted in September, was to challenge Baker's memory because the meeting that they had the day after this text, which was the basis for the indictment, uh, was not recorded. No other FBI witness, just a one-on-one conversation. I thought that was going to be a very tough proof. But it turns out that in the spring, Durham told Baker that the government was, of course, obliged to disclose to the defense any statements by the witnesses that might be relevant. So he told them, please go back in your records and see if you can, if, if you have anything that we need to turn over to the defense. And Baker found this text in uh, in late May, and it was disclosed to the defense. And it's really changed their approach to the case because they can't really credibly at this point challenge that Sussman so said that he was not representing anyone.
0: Just, and, and I know that We're so far in the weeds here that there might be people tuning in saying I don't even really understand what Guy and Andy are talking about here. I am less deeply ensconced in this trial than you are. So let me see if I've got this right to try to translate this, and then if I'm wrong, please correct me. It sounds like the core of this trial itself is did Sussman, this Clinton-Democrat-connected lawyer, lie when he told the FBI – that he was not representing the Clinton campaign when feeding the feds information detrimental to Donald Trump. And it seemed like it could be a he said, he said about whether or not that assertion had been made at all. But because of the discovery and unearthing of this text message, it's right there in black and white that this lawyer did unequivocally make that claim a false claim about whom he was representing or not representing while passing on the information to the FBI. Is all that correct so far? Yes, that's exactly right. Okay, so, again, this is where my naivete comes in because you're a prosecutor. You spent many, many days, weeks, months of your life in courtrooms. I have not. How is that not just open and shut then? If you've got a text message of the guy lying to the FBI in print ...about the nature of the work that he was doing, and the trial is about whether or not he lied to the FBI about the nature of the work he was doing, it seems like that could be a one-hour trial and we're done. Why is it not quite that simple? I think because they're trying
6: to confuse the jury. They can't deny the statement now because it's, as you say, in black and white. So what they're trying to do is parse the statement uh, and parse the representation and what all that means... Uh, And I don't think it's coherent, but they are trying to confuse the jury. And here's what they're saying, Guy. What what they're basically saying is it really didn't serve the campaign's interest for Sussman to go into the FBI because the bureau might have called the press and asked them not to run the story when what the the campaign really wanted was for the story to be run. Now, I I think factually that is very unpersuasive. Uh, what they were trying to do is get the FBI interested in the story because that makes it a better
0: story. But right, because if what, the FBI is sniffing around and then it gets out that the FBI is sniffing around, that leads the public potentially, once that's reported, to believe that this must be serious. It lends credence, correct. credibility, seriousness to the whole thing. The smoke around the potential fire gets thicker with more severity right, and more seriousness. So that excuse makes no sense to me. Right, so factually it doesn't make any sense, but legally here's what he's trying to say, and and
6: frankly I think this makes even less sense, but this is their story and they're sticking to it. What he's basically saying is if he was not acting in the interest of the campaign, then he really wasn't representing the campaign. So they have now admitted (laughs) that – yeah, right. So they've now admitted that uh, Sussman was working for the campaign when he contacted the New York Times about the story – but he's saying they're saying that he didn't go to the FBI on behalf of the campaign. He went as a private citizen who was oh, concerned on. about Trump. Well, I mean, I am, just, I'm just
0: just insulting. Don't hear, I mean, don't right? The messenger here. No, I'm not. I'm I'm reacting to the claim, not to you. I mean, how absolutely absurd! They admit this is how bad it sounds. Just again, from a layperson's perspective, they admit yes, he sent the text message passing along this information to the FBI and explicitly telling the FBI, I am not working for the Clinton campaign. When in fact, he was working for the Clinton campaign as he did that, but because they have this cockamamie explanation of why hypothetically it could be spun as not in Hillary's interests at the time for that divulgence to happen at that moment, he must have been representing her campaign but simultaneously freelancing as a totally private citizen with no eye toward his client while he was passing along this information to the FBI, clearly for the purpose of laundering it through the FBI to make it more serious, to make things worse for Trump. It's just absolutely insulting to the collective intelligence of the public and I'd say of the jury as well. Yeah, and you haven't even
6: gotten to the best part. Well, Everything you said is true. But the other thing is... He billed the Clinton campaign for the meeting with Baker. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I think, Guy, what they're banking on here is if they if uh, they can throw enough dust up that maybe a D.C. jury that hates Trump will, uh, will walk
0: them despite the evidence. So it's like here was my job description at the time. Here I am doing almost this exact same thing with another entity at the same time, under the auspices of representing the Clinton campaign. Here I am, doing the same thing with the FBI, telling them that I'm not working for the Clinton campaign, even though I am. And then that exercise that I performed with the FBI, that moment of my time, I build to the Clinton campaign to make money off of it. That is seemingly pretty airtight, Andy.
6: Well, it's it's D.C. though, Guy. It's a you know, it's it's very tough to get a conviction there uh, if you are perceived to be in the Republican camp or in the in the Trump camp. And I'm not saying Dorum is, but I mean, you understand how the the narrative is playing out for the jury. And the other thing I find that's that's kind of disturbing is they managed to get some people on the jury who flat out said that they were you know they were Hillary supporters and. Uh, had made contributions to the Democratic campaigns, deeply opposed to Trump politically. And the judge did not uh, think that that was good enough reason to keep them off the jury. So, you know, if I'm Durham, I'm never going to be comfortable in this trial. But I think he's got a very strong case.
0: Although, again, maybe you can help educate me here. Isn't there, what, voir dire and peremptory challenges where you can just say, no to certain prospective jurors and they're gone? Why wouldn't Durham's team say, if you're a Hillary Clinton donor, there's going to be plenty of Hillary Clinton voters, of course, in a D.C. jury pool, but if you're a donor or you're very heavily politically involved, you're out. Well, Guy, under the rules, you get um, about,
6: for the government, you get about six peremptory challenges, which is people that you can kick off the the jury, um, not necessarily for cause. And then you have to rely on the court to get rid of anybody who really is so conflicted that they should not be on the jury. And I think the problem they have with this is Judge Cooper, Christopher Cooper, who is um, who is presiding over this trial, has a lot of contacts himself to Clinton world and Good. to you know the Obama people. So I think he's got a um, – let's, let's say an unusually elastic view of what uh, a conflict of interest is, and that may not uh, be – Good for Durham.
0: Could they have gone for a change of venue here rather than doing it in the belly of the beast in a place that votes what 96 percent Democrat?
6: They would have had a, a hard time, I think, doing that because uh, there would have been vigorous objection by the defendant, who constitutionally, unless the defendant moves for a change of venue, generally speaking, you're entitled to be ah. tried in the place where the crime takes okay. place. Okay, no, I mean that's if that there makes was sense. One,
0: That makes sense. I mean, hopefully even a bunch of partisan Democrats with the evidence in front of them can't avoid what was happening here. And saying that this guy lied to the FBI does not mean that you're all of a sudden a MAGA Trump supporter. But the evidence is what it is. Andy, about a minute left. Let's zoom out. Where is this wider controversy headed now?
6: Well, there's two possibilities, Guy. One, and I guess this is a certainty. At At a certain point, Durham will write a narrative report whether that's going to be based on charges or just based on what he has found he will write a narrative report to the Attorney General explaining what he uh, found and that should be made public but that how much of it gets made public is up to the AG is up will be up to Garland and then the second thing is uh, Durham has hinted that he's not done yet and that he still has an active investigation in fact one of the key people in this case, this guy Rodney Jaffe, who worked with, uh, with Sussman on these records, um, they wanted to call, the defense wanted to call him as a witness, and Durham said that he is still the subject of an active investigation and would not give him immunity to testify. So hmm. Durham may not be done.
0: All right, this isn't over. And if and when we get to the narrative report, and Durham surveys the waterfront, as they say, and tells the American people what really happened with this entire Russia matter, I hope there will be massive pressure on the attorney general to release that report in its entirety with minimal redactions. That is how the media treated Bill Barr, who did precisely what I just described with the Mueller report. The same standard should apply in this case I won't necessarily hold my breath because I think a lot of people in the media are very invested in one narrative here because they staked a lot of their own reputation on it. And, of course, they have their own political biases. So we'll see. I'm not expecting that same degree of pressure to be brought to bear, but I guess we'll find out together at some point here in the future. Andy McCarthy, Fox News contributor, former federal prosecutor here on the Guy Benson Show, breaking it all down with us on the Sussman trial and the Durham probe. Andy, always enjoy it. Thank you. Thanks so much, Guy. We'll be right back after this.
2: Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show.
0: Guy Benson Show from Nashville today and tomorrow. I saw this tweet earlier. A woman named Molly says, you know, it's a fun Twitter game. Ask your followers how tall you are. There are a ridiculous amount of people here that accurately predict height from vibes. So that sparked the thought in my mind that when I meet people in person, sometimes for the first time, at engagements, at events, who've seen me on television for years, not infrequently, I hear something along the lines of, oh, you are taller than I thought. And I'm like, do I read short on TV? Do people assume folks on TV are shorter? I don't really know how it works. So I posted on my personal Twitter feed a poll at Guy P. Benson. I said, okay, do you think I'm 5'8 to 5'10? That's option one. 5'11 is option two. Six foot zero, flat, is option three. Or somewhere 6'1 to 6'3. Those are the four options. And last time I checked earlier in the afternoon... There were 2,000-some-odd votes, and a near majority said 5'8 to 5'10. The second most popular answer was 5'11, and you add those two together, it's like a super majority, three out of four people voting. Assume that I am under six feet tall. Producer Christine, what would your guess-slash-vote be here? Six feet. Why? what would you guess? Uh, I would say six feet as well. Dan?
2: Yeah, I'm a six-footer right there. I'm thinking that.
0: You all have the advantage of spending a lot of time with me. However, correct. I am six feet, zero inches, bam. So sorry, America, you missed the mark. I guess what you see and perceive on TV is not always what it might appear. Six feet tall, ladies and gentlemen. That's a fact. On The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back.
2: You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson.
0: We are back on the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. Earlier in today's program, in our first hour, Peter Ducey joined us, Fox News White House correspondent. A lot to get to with him today, and we tried to cover as much of it as we could. Here's a snippet of my back and forth with our colleague, Peter Ducey. You are over there because of this trip, the president in Asia. What's the itinerary for him? What is the White House trying to get out of this first presidential visit of this administration to the far east
4: well they have been emphasizing uh, the the strength of our partnerships with countries in asia that are not china and so they want to get the leaders of south korea japan and australia together to present a united front against australia or towards australia but uh, yesterday right before we left jake sullivan the national security advisor was teasing that there might be intel about a North Korean nuclear test or a North Korean ballistic missile, uh, hypersonic or ballistic missile test uh, while the president is here. And if that happens, that's going to be the story. So they can talk all they want about China and about economic ties. But if North Korea starts launching stuff off 30 miles away, then that's all that anybody's going to want to talk about.
0: Yeah. And since they're in that Pacific Rim region, I believe there are Australian elections coming up. That's a very angry electorate down there. So I think the conservatives might be in some trouble. But I guess they'll be represented at some of these summits. Is there any talk about Taiwan and, and what the posture of the president might be toward Taiwan on this trip, if that's the signal that he's trying to send about, you know, a, a buttress against China or a hedge against China, do the Taiwanese play into this, or is that too much of a hot potato?
4: I, It seems like it might be too much of a hot potato so far, although we do expect to get some more details from the president's plane. They're going to do a press briefing on there with those reporters uh, any minute now, I, it's interesting, though, that you brought up the Australian elections. I, they came all this way to have a meeting with the Australians as a quarter of the, the so-called quad. And uh, because of those elections, it's possible that there might not be a representative here. Like they might not know who to send <laughs> or they might not have the right, right person to send. And the White House, the White House knows it. So we'll see what
0: happens there. Yeah, it could It could be a lame duck Australian administration, depending on what happens here Uh, in a matter of days. Down under, Peter, staying on the foreign policy front, the president was at the White House earlier back in this neck of the woods in Washington, D.C., although I'm doing the show from Nashville. I'm a lot closer to D.C. than you are right now. He (laughs) welcomed two foreign leaders to the White House from Finland and from Sweden. Obviously, a lot of conversation about the expansion of NATO This was clearly some sign of solidarity here from the president. The Russians are not happy about it. We know the Turkish government has been balking at this idea. What can you tell us about that, even though you are half a world away?
4: Well, we know that this was apparently an easy call. We're told that the president talked to his national security team about these European countries joining NATO, and everybody said they thought it would be a, a net positive for NATO and for the U.S. But what's so notable is that Ukraine was asking to get into NATO a couple months ago, and we've been pumping them full of weapons and cash, uh, another $40 billion,
0: uh, The White House wants to get over there as fast as possible. That full conversation with Peter Ducey, White House correspondent here at Fox News, is available online at GuyBensonShow.com. Also part of the free podcast, the whole show, every day, on demand, start to finish, free of charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, would you want someone else to plan a vacation for you? Like everything. You have no control even over where you're going. That's a trend. We're a little skeptical of it here. We'll discuss when we come back. For the full interview and more, go to
2: GuyBensonShow.com.
0: Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you all here. GuyBensonShow.com, podcast free every day. I'm also going to mention this, as we do somewhat regularly, our social media handle. Well, you can follow us on Twitter and on Instagram. It's at Guy Benson Show. I sometimes cite my own tweets. Those are on my personal account, at Guy P. Benson. You're welcome to follow me there. But the show account is at Guy Benson Show, and we are tantalizingly close on Twitter to 10,000 followers just for the show, as the show itself continues to grow as well. Last I checked earlier this afternoon – we were, I believe, 21 followers shy of 10,000. And that number may have closed a little bit over the course of the program. Wyatt can check that for me. But we are very, very close. So how about this? If you follow at Guy Benson's Show right now over the course of this final segment, we're going to try to push to and then blow past 10,000 followers. And if it turns out that you are follower number 10,000, we'll have Wyatt keep track of that. Follower number 10,000 will get a follow from at Cookies Jar 1988, producer Christine's Twitter feed. She will not only follow you back on behalf of the show, she will shout you out on her Twitter feed. And I might even do the same on mine. And then we will mention you as a thank you on the air tomorrow. How's that? It's just a shameless plug. We're trying to get past 10,000. Let's go for it. We're so close, America. Although we have lots of listeners elsewhere. If you're international, go for it. At Guy Benson Show, give us a follow. And if you are number 10,000, streamers will fall from the ceiling. Balloons. There'll be music. A special guest performance from Sweet Nina. It'll be amazing, but we will actually, in reality, have Christine follow you on Twitter, shout you out, and we'll mention you on air tomorrow. Christine, I did not mention this to you, but I assume you're okay with this.
7: Um, yeah, none of this was discussed. You know how nope. I don't like that.
0: Except, it's a good idea, isn't it?
7: Uh, so, I have to follow this person now.
0: Yeah, and then, and you have to give them a shout out on the air, which will which we'll do tomorrow. So, you'll Wyatt will figure out who the person is. Number 10,000. You will follow them. You will give them a little hello to your Twitter followers, and then we will mention them on the air tomorrow.
7: Shouldn't you do that? When this is
0: going to be – this is a you production that I'm assigning you. Just oh, okay. on the air in front of everyone.
7: Well, well, thank you, and I look forward to this.
0: Thank you. I, I was hoping to get some enthusiasm about this because there has been a point of emphasis about – gaining social media followers and that sort of thing. I know that modern technology is not really your thing, but I don't know. I feel like people should be scrambling to get a follow from at cookies jar 1988. I remember when I got that notification, it was a thrill thrill of a lifetime. Almost many people are saying
7: I feel like I'm being made fun of again. I don't
0: think you, I don't think you are. I, I think I'm trying to hype up the crowd trying to hype the audience, usually, where's the chief happiness officer? I was hoping to get a strong assist here in the hype game. Instead, you're like, oh, I don't want to do it. You're like Debbie Downer. It's like you're supposed to pop out of a birthday cake to sing for someone, but in fact, you fall out of the cake because you're asleep. That's what this is feeling like.
7: Better than that than drunk, right? I don't know, actually. Depends on how drunk,
0: honestly. Is it like normal Saturday night cookie drunk or why is Cookie calling me at eleven PM drunk?
7: Oh that one. Right. There's yeah, yeah. Okay. there's two that, different that types. One, yes.
0: There there definitely are. There definitely are. <laughs> okay, let's why, not talk
7: about this. I can talk to Roy about this tomorrow.
0: Roy being your therapist, your yes. new therapist. Okay. And you can talk through the whole thing. Maybe you can talk about our ten thousandth follower with Roy. Maybe That's it could be Roy maybe it could be Roy who's to say it wouldn't be it's like oh congratulations at shrink Roy 74 for being Twitter follower oh, 10,000 at Guy Benson show so why you're all over this right you're gonna find lucky number 10,000 uh I guess so wow everyone here at the show is so excited about this Dan, can you at least pretend that you're excited about this?
7: I'm so pumped to
2: find out who's gonna be the ten thousand follower. I'm so oh, excited. This is yes. you know, this is groundbreaking.
0: Good. Okay. That was at least a somewhat believable lie. Dan gets a raise. Just kidding, I don't have the power to do that. <laughs> I do though, right? You would. Um, you have the power, what, to give Dan a raise?
7: As the chief happiness officer, I can can say to Dan, I think you should get a raise. See, and
0: this was part of our conversation, what was it, Monday or Tuesday, when we had this home stretch about this position for you, the chief happiness officer. One of my concerns that I raised at that time was you would start making promises to people and leading them to believe... That things were going to happen, promotions, raises, that kind of thing, that you actually didn't have the authority to deliver upon, which could end up rolling back the happiness that would be temporary based on a lie and turn into like a chief resentment officer. That was my concern. It sounds like it was a valid concern.
7: No, no, no. I'm just giving Dan hope. Dan, I really think you deserve more money. You should get a raise. Doesn't mean he's going to, but I I believe in him enough that he should.
2: I do feel a little happier at the idea Mm. of it.
7: See? (laughs) Mm. There you go.
0: Yeah. Okay. (laughs) I mean, look, here's what I'm going to say. I can actually deliver on the promise that if you are a follower number 10,000 at Guy Benson Show, you will get a follow from Cookie, a shout-out from producer Christine, i.e. Cookie, and then we will mention you on air during Friday fun tomorrow. So there you go. We've flogged this thing even further to death. But I bet you it'll work. That's the thing. And then Wyatt can report to the higher-ups, ooh, look at this milestone that we've reached. If he can bring himself to bother to do that, given the level of enthusiasm we heard in his voice earlier this segment. I thought he would love this. Like, this whole scheme was really for YY the Clown to do this thing and achieve something that he's been talking about now for weeks. he's like, well, I guess. Ugh. Didn't we have some other topic here? Oh, right, this vacation planning thing.
7: I do. We teased
0: it. We teased it before the break. (laughs) What are you going to say, Christine?
7: I do have to tell you one thing about Promises. Uh, The producer for the Jimmy Fallon show lost a bet today, and he's actually following through with what he has to do. And when he told me this, I said, well, just don't do it. He goes, I have to.
0: Is it a hot dog costume in Times Square? Is that something you ever did, Christine, (laughs) after losing a bet?
7: Well, one, he has to buy pizza for the entire newsroom, which to me alone, that's too expensive. I would just say, no, not doing it. And two, I got to tell him the story of the hot dog.
0: Oh, what a joy that must have been for him. And then did you tell him the story about French onion soup? I sure.
7: Of course I did.
0: Yeah. That was, look, justice delayed is often justice denied, but in this case, Delayed justice was very, very satisfactory for those of us who meted out the justice, not so much for you, the person who finally had to do what you promised to do. And speaking of which, you don't get to follow back our winner of the follow contest at Guy Benson Show on Twitter. You don't get to do that a year and a half from now. You do it today or tomorrow because we have to name them on the air tomorrow. I'm just putting a deadline on it because that was our mistake Last time with the French onion soup and the lost bet. You can go back in the archive and hear the backstory to that if you're interested. Christine, we're like kind of almost out of time here. What's this vacation planning story?
7: So I'm sure you know who found this story, but it's out of the Wall Street Journal. And Okay. Say no more. <laughs> okay. And apparently there are companies out there. That you can hire, and you will pay X amount of money, and they will plan a vacation for you, but you don't know anything. The whole trip from A to Z is planned by them, like your day-to-day activities, where you're going, your flights. You just hand over the money, and then I think it's either a day before or when you get to the airport, you get the tickets. Like, you open everything, and then you know where you're going.
0: Okay. I will say this. Number one, no. Not interested. Number two, I understand the appeal because for a lot of people, they're busy, they're stressed, they want some time away, and the combination of someone else doing all the legwork where they don't have to think. It's just, here you go, boom, itinerary, vacation. It's all been planned by someone else. That plus the surprise, the anticipation, and then you, I guess, like open the envelope. Oh, we're going to fill in the blank. I get that melding together into something that some people would love. I am just not one of those some people because I'm a type A planner. I have done surprise vacations for others that I have meticulously planned and then surprised them at the last minute. For example, when I took Adam to Paris to get engaged, which he did not know until I surprised him with that, which was an epic story. Separate story for another day. We told it on the air back at the time in 2018. Maybe we can repeat it one day. But I will say, if I do say so myself, it was a pretty, pretty good proposal situation. But he didn't even know that we were going internationally. He had no idea what the destination was. I gave him conflicting clues. His friend made sure that I had his passport. And then on the way to the airport, he found out we were going to Paris. And that was very exciting for him. It was exciting for me because I loved being part of the surprise. I also loved the control of picking all the things. Where are we going? Where are we staying? What are we doing? Plus, I had this big event in mind as well. So I love being on the other side of a surprise generally. And because vacations are so precious to me and actual time off, I travel a lot, but actual time off, I really want to be able to plan what that looks like. For me, my family, my friends, what have you. That's sort of where I come down on this, but I can see how there would be a market for this. Christine, I'm going to guess you are also a no on going after this particular service.
7: I am a complete no, but one person – actually, why did I discuss this? There's only one person I think in my life that I would let do this. And do you know who that person is?
0: Oh, it's me.
7: That's my best friend.
0: Yeah, well, let's, let's not get carried away, but it's definitely me because you know that I have good taste in things, good taste in food. I have not led you astray when we have traveled together for work-related things. So I am honored. This is actually a very high compliment. Wyatt, would you do this? Would you want someone to plan the whole thing and then just spring it on you last minute?
6: One hundred percent. Yes. It's like a bucket list thing of mine. I, I would even go as as far as to say that I would I would just want to show up to the airport with my passport
5: and let the ticket agent pick where I'm going to go and, and kind of just go from there.
0: Whoa. Or if someone is like, just chloroform me, knock me out and wake me up in the middle of the flight. And I have to ask people, where are we going? That's maybe a bit much. So you are one of the people who's like, yes, I love this idea. Go for it. So it's two to one against Dan. Are you a yay or a nay?
2: I'm with Wyatt. I'm okay with it. I would uh-huh. let someone plan it for me, where I'm going, what I'm doing. I haven't been too many places in my life, so I would, I would welcome it, um, and I would do it.
0: All right, we're all tied up here. Wow. They pulled their goalie. They got the equalizer. It's 2-2. Two two. I guess in sudden death overtime, this question will be determined maybe by our 10,000th follower. Maybe they get to break the tie. I don't know. We'll find out who that is. Wyatt will very excitedly... Report that information to us any moment now, and we'll let you know tomorrow. Back here for the Friday edition of the Guy Benson Show from Nashville, Tennessee. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you for listening, and have a great night.